0: Welcome to the CRE Exchange Podcast, where we deep dive into the global trends and challenges of CRE professionals across all sectors of the commercial real estate industry. We engage with experts in the space to bring you innovative insights into industry practices, opportunities, and challenges to better inform your decisions. This episode is brought to you by Altus Group, a global leader in asset and fund intelligence for commercial real estate.
1: Welcome, everyone, to another exciting episode of the CRE Exchange. I'm Cole Perry, your host and senior market analyst at Altus Group, a leading provider of asset and fund intelligence. I'm joined by Omar el our U.S. Director of Research. Together, we'll share the latest news and trends in the U.S. CRE market. Omar, it's great to be with you. So we're recording on Monday, November 13th, but I want to hear what caught your attention in the past few weeks. Certainly. Since we last spoke,
2: there's been a lot of action across global central banks, Over the last few weeks, we've seen five central banks make policy rate announcements. Starting on October 26th, the ECB held their policy rate at 4.5 percent, though last week on November 10th, Christine Lagarde, the president of the ECB, said that the ECB will not start cutting rates in the next couple of quarters. Then on October 31st, the Bank of Japan, or BOJ, loosened its yield curve control policy keeping short-term lending rates at a negative 10 basis points and longer-term yield target for the 10-year target bond at 0%. However, in the week following the BOJ's decision, the BOJ's governor, Kazuo Ueda, said that the central bank does not necessarily need to wait until inflation-adjusted wage growth turns positive before it ends its ultra-loose monetary policy. And then on November 1st, I would say all market eyes tuned in to hear the Fed with its policy rate decision. The Fed did not surprise markets and and held rates steady, continuing the pause that it put in place in prior press releases. And in the press conference, Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell spoke to tighter financial conditions as a weight on overall economic activity and inflationary pressure, but didn't take any future tightenings or hikes off the table, nor did he signal that cuts were coming. This is really something that the market really only seemed to catch on to in the days that followed. And while the next Fed decision isn't until December 13th, the futures market is showing that a possible additional 25 basis point hike before year-end, is still on the table. And this really came into effect when Mr. Powell warned markets that the Fed would tighten if appropriate, and he expressed some doubt that the current policy is sufficiently tight to hit the bank's target 2% inflation. And then following the Fed's announcement, the Bank of England, they also announced a continuation of their pause as members of the Monetary Policy Committee voted 6 to 3 to hold rates steady, with three voting to raise. Along with the announcement to pause, the BOE's Monetary Policy Committee dropped its 2025 estimates, uh, ultimately showing no growth for, for 2024. And finally, on November 7th, the Reserve Bank of Australia hiked its policy rate 25 basis points to 4.35 percent marking the highest level in more than a decade. And this hike is widely expected by the market to be the last of its tightening cycle. Now, the key takeaway in terms of the central bank action is that central banks across the globe are solidly in the pause camp. So while they aren't raising rates, it's important to keep in mind that they are not yet cutting either. And many of these central banks are still holding rather hawkish stances when it comes to guiding the market and around the future path of their policies. And this hawkish stance is largely because they haven't seen the reduction of inflationary pressures that they would like to. And on the topic of inflation, Cole, I know that you've been looking at some recent University of Michigan survey data that touches on inflation.
1: What are you seeing there? Yeah, we got the November data on the University of Michigan Consumer Sentiment Index last week, and that reading clocked in at 60.4. So if you use 1966 as a 100, we're at 60.4 relative to that. And that was a decline of four points from the previous month. So this index really tracks like a forward look at where consumers think the economy is headed. And what's really interesting about this to me is that consumers have just about as negative a view of the economy as they did at some parts of the GFC. So what's really going on here? Unemployment is at record lows and GDP growth was massive last quarter. So my question is what gives, but I've heard some people call this the vibe session, meaning consumer outlook on the economy is pretty divorced from some of the key metrics like I just talked about. But if you keep in mind what you were just talking about with some of the inflation data and some of the policy rate decisions, I don't think it's too hard to see why consumer sentiment is sour and or expected to sour. One way to escape the impacts of inflation, so to speak, is to uh, seek greener pastures and a higher paying job. But real wage growth is starting to decline. For much of 2023, the uh, median hourly wage growth was upwards of 6% year-on-year, year, but the October reading came in at 5.2, which was actually the lowest since January of 2022. Now, couple this with a softening labor market, in September, job openings were down 13% over the year, hirings were down 6.8% on the year, and quits were also down year-on-year. Year. So think about all those in context of one another. People are staying in their existing jobs, and there are now fewer jobs to seek refuge from inflation. So everything is cooling off. People are unable to escape inflation by seeking higher wages. Added to that, interest rates on credit cards have now exceeded 21% on average, which is sort of unbelievable. Two-thirds of banks are, are tightening their consumer lending standards, which I think really just adds to a lot of the complications related to inflation, pair that with some of the information you were talking about. And I know that this makes it really difficult and is likely why consumer sentiment really divorced from some of the other metrics, which might indicate a a really robust good economy. But those tightening consumer lending standards are not unique. I know that tightening underwriting standards are something you saw in the senior loan officer opinion survey. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that?
2: Yeah. So the cramp down in credit was not only for consumer credit and per the senior loan officer opinion survey that you just referenced, or as it's often referred to as "sluice," the acronym. This was released on November 6th, covering up through the month of October. For some context, the sluice is an off-cycle quarterly survey of up to 80 large domestic banks and 24 U.S. branches and agencies of foreign banks. And the survey, which is conducted by the, the Federal Reserve, really provides color on changes in the standards and the terms of bank lending and the overall state of business and household demand for loans. I find this to be one of my favorite surveys and data dumps just because it happens to provide rather consistent and timely reflection of what's happening. And it is off-cycled. You can often get this data and pair it up with other data sets that have already been released. But the high-level takeaway from the October sluice data is that credit is still not flowing from bank lenders as lending standards remain tight and demand for credit remains weak. I'll start with a positive because there was a silver lining from the release. And that silver lining is that was found in the business banking or the commercial and industrial, a.k.a. CNI lending data. And there was a notable increase in demand for CNI loans from larger borrowing firms and nearly 35% of banks surveyed noted stronger demand for cni loans from larger firms and by the larger firms I'm not talking about the banks I'm talking about the borrowers unfortunately the same couldn't be said for smaller institutions which haven't been able to break out of the lower demand and tighter standards that they've experienced in prior quarters. Uh, Nearly two-thirds of banks tightened their underwriting standards for CNI loans through October, and this is down from the 75% that reported tighter standards uh, in the prior quarter. Hopping over to commercial real estate, more than 82% of banks, or a net 65%, reported tightening standards for construction development, multifamily, and other commercial real estate. That's pretty much all the categories of commercial real estate that the survey explores. And while a quarter reported stronger demand for commercial real estate loans, this is very much in line with the prior quarter's data as well. And while the number of respondent institutions reporting tightening and declining demand were slightly moderating compared to the prior quarter. The degree to which the banks are tightening and the degree to which demand has really fallen off is really only comparable to periods and the quarters that were following the or surrounding the pandemic, really. And I would say to counteract the silver lining, The current phase has actually lasted longer than the pandemic periods. Moving out of commercial real estate and hopping into residential loans, overall demand for residential loans fell significantly quarter over quarter, with only about a quarter of banks noting stronger demand for either government-backed or GSE-eligible loans. Now, this is down from a third three months ago and demand for subprime mortgages fell even more dramatically. Fewer than 15% of all the banks that were reporting noted stronger demand for subprime mortgages, and this is down from 46% in the prior quarter. And on the credit supply of the real estate and residential loan equation, more than 50% of banks noted tightening underwriting standards for resi mortgage loans. Now, Overall, the takeaway, as I mentioned, is this was not a positive release showing really dramatically different, I would say, data from prior periods. And it still reflects how constrained credit is. So, If that's what we're seeing in the lending space, I know you were looking at some construction data that recently came out. What'd you see there?
1: Yeah. To just echo some of the stuff that you said, it's an incredibly difficult environment for financing development. And so I think you're starting to see that in some of this construction data. So what I was looking at this week was we had the September release for private construction spending. September showed spending at about 8%, up 8% year on year overall. And that was split between up 13% for public and up 6.5% for private. The bottom line here is really that the momentum is slowing from all that money pumped in through the CHIPS Act and the Inflation Reduction Act for advanced manufacturing and energy. And so you're really seeing the manufacturing spend wane. Manufacturing construction is very elevated from where it was prior to the pandemic. So up 155% since January of 2020. But this figure has actually remained quite flat since May of 2023. As some other things that were interesting in in this data here, spending on office in raw dollars for construction is almost exactly where it was pre-pandemic. But at If I think about this in context, considering inflation and sort of the rise in the cost of materials and the types of office that are now being built and really expensive, kind of high quality CBD office, I wouldn't consider this a very good sign that it's on par with where it was in 2020. Lodging is one that's really taken a hit since then as well. The current reading has it at 75% of its pre-pandemic spend. And frankly, I think you're just starting to see growth in construction spending wane. Almost all these categories saw dips on the month in terms of their year-on-year growth. And private construction spending on residential is down 2.2% from the prior year. This is a little bit better than it was earlier in the summer where we saw declines on the year of closer to 10%, but we're still seeing trouble in that sector. On a related note, we also got some housing price data this week. So the FHFA and the Case-Shiller index tend to come out around the same time. And those readings were quite interesting. We have the FHFA house price index at 280% of January 2000 prices. Mm -hmm. And the Case-Shiller is at 305% of January 2000 prices. So some differences here between those two that might explain some of that difference in how these are calculated. So the FHFA index focuses on single-family homes, but financed by Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. The Case-Shiller encompasses a much wider range of single-family homes and encompasses quite a few larger luxury homes. And so that's why you see those quite elevated relative to the other index. That index also covers refinancings, conforming and non-conforming mortgages. Both metrics have reached their highest level on record. And that's largely because supply of single family homes remains incredibly thin, both indexes are up about 40% from the beginning of the pandemic. But 40% is almost identical to what the FHFA actually saw between 2010 and 2020, a change in three years that you hadn't seen even in the previous 10. So it was only a little bit off for Case Schiller as well, where you a 45% increase from 2010 to 2020 relative to a 40% increase in the three years after that. If an increase in housing prices wasn't enough to lock people out of the housing market, I know that mortgage rates climbing closer and or exceeding 8% are locking folks out as well. So what's been going on with treasury yields and mortgage rates?
2: Yeah, the last two weeks of market activity and trading for treasuries, as well as risk credit, has been quite wild, right? We've seen some pretty significant moves across fixed income markets, really driven by the 10-year U.S. Treasury, which the yield on these securities jumped nearly 40 basis points from mid-October and just about touched 5% and then tumbled back down to 4.5%. There were multiple days when the yield action of the 10-year really exceeded a standard deviation move which is an abnormal day, right? And with all of this yield action with treasuries, the 30-year fixed-rate mortgage has just continued to climb, and it now is right around that 7.8%, which, to your point, is certainly locking a number of people out of purchasing And one other thing in terms of the fixed income markets that I would note before jumping over to broader markets is that the yield curve remains negative, right? This Mm -hmm. is something that we've been tracking for a long time. This is an abnormal signal that is one of the strongest signals of an upcoming recession, right? And the 10-year minus the three-month T-bill has been negative For over 260 trading days. This is the longest consecutive number of days that this pair has remained negative. Now, there are other pairs that are often cited. So the 10-year minus the Fed funds rate or the 10-year minus the two-year, these are still in negative territory. However, they are still also a ways away from passing their prior consecutive record number of days in which they've been negative. But as the yield curve remains negative, we are closing on those prior records. And that's something we'll continue to watch. But outside of fixed income, equity markets have seen some pretty significant moves, not only because they've been reacting to central bank policy as well as the fixed income market swings, but also because we are wrapping up the third quarter earnings season. We're very much in the final stretch with over 90% of the larger cap companies having already reported the final releases that we are expecting to hear over the coming weeks are predominantly in the consumer, whether that's consumer discretionary or consumer staples sectors, and a number of large information technology companies. Now, overall, The third quarter results have been positive with around 62% of the companies that have already reported reporting beats in terms of revenues and 78% reporting beats in terms of earnings per share or EPS. Now, communication services was the sector that has had the most reported earnings beats with more than 80% of the companies that have reported third quarter earnings beating analyst expectations. And while real estate is the sector with the fewest number of earnings beats, 68% of the companies in the real estate sector did beat analyst expectations when it comes to revenue. And Cole, I know you've been listening to many companies' calls. Are there any that you've tuned into recently that you're willing to share?
1: Yeah. The last kind of bit of earnings calls before you get into those retailers are some of the REITs. And so we had a few prior to this recording that we hadn't discussed yet. And so those are Simon Property Group and Mace Rich, which are two enclosed mall REITs, two of the remaining four, I should say. So Simon was overall a beat on earnings. They saw their domestic NOI increase by Occupancy for mall and outlet malls was at 95.2%, which is really incredible. This was up from their record, which was in 2022 of 94.5%. They signed almost a thousand leases totaling 4.3 million square feet. And just thinking about the types of properties that they have, that's another sort of incredible number. They continue to eye their development wing. They're looking at multifamily to augment some of their existing enclosed properties or to replace anchors. And that's something you and I actually talked about on one of the previous podcasts. But Simon said that they have a few retailers on their bankruptcy watch list, but actually far fewer than at any point in their recent history. So Simon's earnings really speak to the strength and resilience of the enclosed mall sector mace rich was a little bit different they were overall a miss on earnings but they did have some impressive metrics that i wanted to call out they're in the same boat as far as occupancy is concerned they saw 93.4 percent during quarter three that was actually up 130 basis points on the year they signed uh, 766 000 square feet in leases and that was up 10 percent from quarter three 2022 um so they actually have what they've considered unprecedented levels of leasing demand in the pipeline, more than 2 million square feet, which likely will show up either in quarter four or quarter one 2024. Saw a similar increase in NOI, 4.8% and some decent releasing spreads. So again, the difference between the in-place contracted rent and new leases, and that was a 10%. So they've outperformed on the fundamentals. But one thing the markets didn't like was that sales per square foot are declining. So they're seeing a little bit of weakness there. Despite some of the strong leasing pipeline, you get the tenants in there and their, their sales are declining a little bit. So this might be sort of a canary in the coal mine for where uh, discretionary consumer spending is going, just thinking about some of the types of tenants that Mace Rich is really exposed to. Both companies are very concerned about increasing operating expenses. That was something that was really notable from both of those. And I don't think unique to enclosed malls, though those are interesting in that they are climate controlled. Increasing energy expenses really hit those properties harder than they would for some others. I also took a look at Kite Realty Group. So they're also, like Simon, based in Indianapolis. Um, They're a vertically integrated REIT. They own a variety of different types of properties, grocery anchored centers, and some mixed-use developments. Overall, they missed on earnings, but they beat on revenue. And they showed similarly good occupancy figures in quarter three, 93.4%. That was down 180 basis points from the prior year but this was almost entirely due to Bed Bath & Beyond. This was something we noted from some of the other earnings when I talked about them on the last podcast. They had about a $1 million impact from Bed Bath & Beyond, but I've already begun to backfill some of those spaces. So I'll be looking forward to hearing what they have to say during their quarter four earnings about uh, the contract or the releasing spreads for some of those Bed Bath & Beyond spaces. I'm sure they're going to be huge. But they did end up signing two hundred and fourteen leases representing one point four million square feet. So that just speaks to how large some of the spaces were that they actually filled. And they've seen more non-traditional luxury retailers expressed interest in their centers. So ones that might traditionally be found in a shopping enclosed shopping mall or an outlet mall. So ones that might actually be found at a Maestrich or assignment property, they're expressing interest in some of these. Inline shops at strip centers. Quite interesting there. They gave some interesting guidance for the new year. The bottom line for Kite is that leasing, occupancy, and NOI trends are very strong. And that's, I think, can be said across the retail sector, like we talked about on a couple of the previous podcasts. And this is really seen across enclosed, strip, and grocery-anchored properties. So quite good news. In the Retail sector. What are you seeing in some of those? What are you thinking?
2: Yeah, I know that many of the grocery anchored and the strip centers really benefited quite a bit from the work from home trends that we've seen. And even though I would say there, it might be a little bit of a zero sum game in terms of we've seen other property types, notably office, and then a lot of the retail that is dependent on office occupancy and and people being at work in the surrounding economy. We've seen that take a significant hit. I know that these retail centers have really been thriving and the fact that they're attracting new tenants and new types of tenants, I think that is a vote of confidence right, by these retailers for following where the money's being spent. You've looked at a lot of the work-from-home trends using some census data recently. And I know you got a piece coming out in the next week. Do you want to give a quick preview of
1: that piece? Sure. Like you mentioned, that piece is going to be live by the time the podcast is up. I did some research into the American Community Survey one-year estimates. They came out in September. These cover geographies with over 65,000 people in terms of population. So that's more than 800 of the country's 3,000 counties. And so these estimates covered 2022. And I think this data helps us illustrate the evolving trends in remote work adoption. They track commutes. And so if you're listed as not having a commute, meaning you work from home, we can get a good idea of where some of these levels of total remote work we're still sitting at by mid to late 2022. So what I found was that a negative correlation exists between the rise in remote work from 2019 to 2022 and office transaction activity. If you use this as a proxy for confidence in the office market, the percentage of people staying home versus going to the office, what you really find is at a base level, remote work, as it becomes more popular office market confidence declines. And so you really saw this be the case for I would say technology industry, heavy markets. And so some of the largest increases in remote work were coupled with the uh, largest decreases in office transaction activity in San Francisco, Seattle, Austin, Portland, and Washington, D.C., which is interesting because it's both heavily exposed to the technology sector, Northern Virginia is a real hotspot for a lot of technology companies, but also the federal government still has a lagging return to office policy. And so you really have seen transactions drop off in some of these markets. So I continue to pour over this data. I will note too that we'll expand. This is just the first of many potential insights regarding this topic. This is fresh data from the census. We will get the five-year estimates, which should go down to the tract level in just a month or two year. And so I think there's uh, endless things that we can look at, but I can't wait to dig into some of that on a very granular level. Yeah and
2: I would just chime in because I think that this piece is the start of advancing the remote work and or office conversation. I think it's known that there's uncertainty with office and it's known that remote work is a net negative but to be able to see which markets are I would say threatened the most or which ones are positioned the best in terms of getting people back to the office is something that I haven't yet seen with a very robust set of data. And this piece tackles that using a very robust set of data. So I really enjoyed it and I hope the listeners do too. But I know that we have a number of other announcements and upcoming items to plug here at the time of recording this podcast. And by the time it goes live, there'll be an article recap of the state of the market webinar, which we recorded a number of weeks ago. You can find that on the Insights page. It was an event that really covered some pretty valuable perspectives from two portfolio managers and strategists. And hopefully if you didn't see the event live, you can watch the recording, you can get all the insights there. And so that'll be on the site. As well as in terms of macro releases, we have inflation data coming out this week. CPI will have been published on the 14th and PPI on the 15th. And then we're also paying attention to housing starts and building permits, which is coming out at the end of the week on the 17th. And I know that you're tuned into a number of retailer announcements and retail data. What are you paying attention to this week?
1: Yeah. For folks who've been listening to the podcast for a while, I've made this comment before, but retailers are delayed by about a month in terms of releasing earnings because they like to cover their quarter four earnings and have them include the holidays. So they're shifted a little bit. So we get all of the retailer earnings this and next week. So we should be seeing Target, Walmart, Macy's, TJX companies, Home Depot, Best Buy, and Lowe's. So some of the country's largest retailers all in the next week or two. But coincidentally, we also get advanced retail sales data. It will be out by the time the podcast is released on the 15th. And some really exciting numbers there in advance of the holidays to give us an idea of where the consumer is sitting and what their outlook is for the next year. So I'm very excited about those and I look forward to covering them on the next podcast. But Omar, I think that's all the time we've got today. And I look forward to speaking with you on another episode of the CRE Exchange. Have a on.
0: Thank you for listening to the CRE Exchange podcast powered by Altus Group. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review and be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. This episode is brought to you by Altus Group, a global leader in asset and fund intelligence for commercial real estate. At Altus, we bring together capabilities across technology, analytics, valuations, tax, and development advisory services. We are guided by bold thinking, integrity, and inclusivity, partnering with CRE professionals to maximize opportunities with exceptional service experience. Find out more at altusgroup.com.